Well, let's go ahead and grab a Bible, turn to Mark chapter 8. And uh, as you're turning to Mark chapter 8, if you don't have a Bible, we'll throw up the passage on the screen uh, behind me. But we spent most of last year in a series uh, in the first eight chapters of the Gospel of Mark uh, that we called The Lion Roars. And if you remember, Mark's Gospel has a very simple structure to it. So there's just 16 chapters in the Gospel of Mark, and you can divide it right in half, right at the eighth chapter. The eighth chapter is a hinge in the entire book of the Gospel of Mark. The first eight chapters, and this is what we spent most of 2022 focusing on, is, is really this question of who is Jesus? So Mark is, what he's doing is he's laying out his gospel to answer this question, who is Jesus? Who is he? And he, and he clearly answers that question because you see that Jesus has power over disease. He has power over the demonic. He has power over death. And, and so the answer to that question, obviously, is Jesus is Lord. That's Mark's answer. In fact, the disciples even asked this question in the first eight chapters because they asked the question, who is he that even the wind and waves obey him? And uh, clearly we see that he is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. Then we come to the eighth chapter and the entire book turns and it focuses away from from this question, who is Jesus? But then it really deals with how will Jesus become king? So that's what really Mark is presenting for us in the, in the next eight chapters. And so what we're going to see is that, that Jesus does not become king in the traditional historical way that, we, that we're used to seeing. Kings rise to power, right? So we're, we're used to seeing kings come to power through revolution or through political posturing uh, or just, you know, ascension to the throne because of who their father was or grandfather or whatever or even military conquest we see that Jesus becomes king through suffering through servanthood and through bearing his cross and uh and so we're going to really unpack that in the over the next few weeks and so today we're going to start a new series we're calling servant king and uh, we're going to see that Jesus defeats the devil he defeats death he, he defeats sin as the servant king. And the passage that we're going to look at today is the passage where Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds by saying, well, you're, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. Uh, he, he's not saying, you know, Christ is your last name. That's not what Christ means. Christ is a title, Messiah, the anointed one. And uh, what, what Peter is really saying is, you're the true king. You're the king to end all kings. You are the king that's going to finally make everything right. And uh, that was Peter's answer. Now, this passage in, in Mark chapter 8 focuses on the identity of Jesus. And as I've been working with this passage over, over the, just the last maybe week and a half or so, I, I think we, we, we come to understand the identity of Jesus and, and something else happens. We come to understand our identity. You know, as we come to know who Jesus is, we come to know who we are. And that's huge because, church, this whole question of identity is the priority question today in our culture, in modern culture. This whole question of who are we? What, is, what does it mean to be a human being? You know, this question of identity, it is the number one question being answered, being discussed in American culture today. And, and really, this question centers around a couple of different questions. Like I already said, what is a human being? How would you define a human being? Another way of asking would be, who am I? 
or to broaden it, who are we? And how would we answer that question? That's the conversation the culture is trying to have right now. And the culture is putting forth some very significant answers. In fact, traditionally, I, I think there's been several identity markers that we've kind of leaned on, that, that, that we've used throughout the centuries to kind of help us answer this question of, well, what is a human being and who am I? I think we've, we've answered that question through looking at race or ethnicity or maybe your occupation or your religion or culture. Uh, these are all different traditional identity markers that we've used to try to answer this question. But Brian Rosner has written a book called Known by God. And what he tries to do is answer this question. What he does, I think, is answer this question, what is a human being, by giving us a biblical perspective, by giving a biblical answer uh, to this whole question of human identity. And this is, this is really his definition of a human being. He says a human being is an image bearer of God who is known and loved by God. That's the definition of a human being. And that's what defines our identity. And so it's a really good book. I, I encourage you to read it. Brian Rosner, Known by God. Now, I, I I'll just tell you today, and, and this is not anything new, but you, you know that our, our political elites today, our celebrity elites, certainly our academic elites today, are emphatically stating that our, our identity is rooted in our sexuality. That our identity is maybe rooted in our politics. Or our identity is... is related to what we feel our gender is. That's what's being kind of put out there today. Or even our identity is what we can achieve. I would say that the most common response to this answer of, you know, this question of, the, of, of identity is, you know, our identity is kind of what we feel inside. And uh, that goes all the way back to the 1700s and a philosopher named Rousseau, you've heard me talk about him before, uh, but basically the thought is my feelings determine my identity. Now, if you're a parent of teenagers, there's a really good chance your kids are struggling with this question right now. I, I don't think there's ever been a time where it's been more difficult to grow up and come to know who you are than the time that we're living in right now as kids really wrestle with this question. And I think currently there is a deliberate attempt in our society to answer this question for our kids and to wall off any other dissenting opinion, any opinion especially that's connected to scripture. There's a deliberate attempt of that going on. And I shared this a few weeks ago and I'll say it again. Parents, if, if you're not discipling your kids, the world is gonna do it for you. If you are not pouring into them what God says about them, that they are image bearers of God, that they are known and loved by God, if you are not pouring that into them, the world will make sure they never hear that. And so uh, it's, an, it's imperative that we, we understand what's going on today. So, so what I wanna do today is, is I wanna answer or just really look at this issue of identity today through the lens of scripture, through the lens of the gospel of Mark. Cause I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to see this right, right from scripture. And I think what scripture lays out is Jesus as our creator gets to determine and answer and define the what a human being is because he created us. So the creator gets to determine what was the purpose of his creation. And I think that's the assumption that scripture really makes. And I'll go a step further. I think what we see in this passage is that we really understand our identity, who we are as people, as we understand who Jesus is, as we understand his identity. So we're gonna read Mark chapter eight, verses 27 
through chapter 9, verse 1. And I'm going to ask, if you're willing and able, would you please stand together uh, for the reading of God's Word today. So Mark records this, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, well, you're the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul. For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but not the word of God. It lasts forever. You may be seated. So what is Jesus saying about identity? What does the Bible teach us about this whole question of identity? I I think there are three truths from this passage I want to unpack for you today. And the first one is this, how I'm known by the world. I I think this passage gives us some insight into how how we are known in the world or by the world. Secondly, I think we can know Jesus. I think from this passage, we we can come to know who Jesus is. And then lastly, I I come to know my true self through knowing Jesus, all right? So let me me just kind of unpack this. First and foremost, I'm known by the world. So I want you to kind of think about this, that we understand ourselves and we understand the world around us through stories. That's how we, how we process things. That's how we develop understanding. So if I went up and asked you, who are you? You would probably tell me your name. You would probably tell me a little bit about your family, where you grew up, what your parents did, what your grandparents did, where you went to school and, you know, and how you got interested in you know, your career that, you know, that, that you're doing right now. So, so this, is, this is normal. This is how we understand ourselves. We make sense of ourselves through stories. Well, it was no different in Jesus' day. They did the exact same thing. So Jesus is walking with the disciples and he asked them, hey guys, you know, who do people say that I am? What's the story on the street about my identity? That's what he's asking. What are people talking about when they, when they talk about me? How do, they, how do they see me? And you see this in verses 27 and 28. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi and on the way he asked them, who, who do people say that I am? And, and then notice this. And they told him, uh, John the Baptist, uh, others say Elijah, and others say some of the prophets. So Jesus had been revealing himself to the people through 
his preaching and teaching and, and obviously through his miracles. And those stories went viral throughout, throughout the Middle East and uh, like wildfire. And uh, the di- disciples said, you know, some people think you're John the Baptist. Because some of the things that John the Baptist said and some of the things he did, those things went viral. And, and, then, and then the disciples said, you know, some of you think, you know, some people think you're Elijah. Now, if you, you don't know the story of Elijah and his ministry in the Old Testament, he did a lot of miracles. And uh, in fact, Elijah didn't actually die. He was, he was swept up into heaven. God just took him home, which would be a great way to go. Um, but that's, that's what happened to Elijah. So some of the people thought, well, maybe since Elijah didn't die, he's come back and he's doing some miracles. And then other people, according to the disciples, said, well, you know, you're a prophet. You're just like Jeremiah, Isaiah, and Ezekiel. Now, what are they doing? They're making sense of what they're seeing Jesus do and say through the stories that they know of the Old Testament and the stories that they've heard about John the Baptist. You could go to the campus of IU and Purdue and you could ask a random sample of students, who is Jesus? And you would get very similar answers. Well, he's a prophet. He's a good moral teacher. He's a philosopher. And those answers would come from the stories that those students have heard about Jesus. That's how they're making sense of his identity. And so everybody has an opinion about the identity of Jesus based on the story that he hears and uh, that they've heard. And so what Jesus does is he presses the question. He's not as interested in, the, in what the people say as much as he's interested in what the disciples say and what they are perceiving him to be. So he asks him, but who do you say that I am? And, uh, and Peter responds by answering, you are the Christ. This is the first time in the Gospel of Mark that that question's been answered. The demons so far understand who Jesus is. They know he's the son of God. They know he's the Messiah. But this is the first time a human being has, has really stated it. And so Peter answers this question, you are the Messiah, but he's not saying it in the way that we think he's saying it. See, his understanding of the Messiah was that the Messiah would, would be the one who would come from God and who would kick the Romans out of Israel and reestablish the kingdom. And then the disciples thought Jesus would establish his kingdom and they would be in his cabinet and they would be ruling with him. And that's exactly the understanding that Peter has. He's a nationalistic savior. That was their understanding. And um, you see this, this wasn't unique to Peter. You see this even in James and John, because a little bit later in Mark, James and John kind of privately approach Jesus and they say, hey, um, Jesus, can you do us a little favor when you come into your kingdom? Would you allow me and my brother to sit on your left and on your right when you come into your kingdom? You guys remember that story? And uh, what are they asking for? They're asking for position and power in the new administration. That's what they're asking for. They want a place. And, uh, and so what you see is all of these competing identities that the crowds have, even the disciples have, about who Jesus is and what he's come to do. Does that make sense? Now, you know, you think about us, just as there are competing identities for Jesus, there are competing identities for us. In fact, sociologists today have identified three very prominent competing identities for every single one of us and for our kids. 
The first one is more traditional. This is from Robert Bella, he's a sociologist. The first one is, is a traditional identity where you, you understand your role, you understand who you are in this world and you fulfill your role. So for example, you grew up 100 years ago on a farm, your family, your parents were farmers, and so you learned farming from them. You grew up helping them on the farm. You came of age, you took over the farm, you started taking care of your parents, and then when they passed away, you, you were in charge of the farm, and then your kids would be following you. And what that would do is bring an identity to you, an identity of honor and respect. And so that's what, what would be called a traditional identity. Now that, that one is fading, because we've become more of a mobile society. But Robert Bella says that there's two more kinds of competing identities that are really gaining in prominence today. And uh, the one that he, he mentions is the one of success. That the way that we're known today is not through kind of our family and where we grew up and what we, you know, what we did just kind of following in our family's footsteps. Uh, we are known by what we can accomplish, that our value and worth is really de derived from what I can do and perform. My status, my success, uh, my bank account, um, my, you know, those kinds of things. It's not, not my, my value doesn't come from my family. It comes from what I'm able to do and perform. And, and I'll say this, I, I mean, our family, we, we've lived We've lived here for 26 years. I think this is especially prominent. I don't know as much about the other high schools, but I think this is especially prominent at Center Grove High School. I really do. I don't mean this as a critique. I'm just saying this as an observation. This is certainly not every kid at Center Grove High School, but I think there's a lot of pressure on kids to feel like you know, they have to be somebody there, either a star athlete, show choir or a cheerleader and some kids believe if they can't check those boxes they're a nobody and then the feeling is the rest of their life is i'm nothing i'm worthless and i i, I really have seen that over the years and uh, I, I think a big part of the anxiety that this that our kids are feeling is this pressure to try to live up to something to be something, uh, social media, to look a certain way. And, and then that determines my value as a person. And, uh, and, and so this is, this is not anything unique to us. It, it's just a part of how the world functions. And uh, in fact, some of you know the, the older movie, Chariots of Fire. There's a scene in that movie uh, where Harold Abrams says, and he's reflecting on a race that he's getting ready to run. And, uh, you know, he says, um, you know, I, as I look down the corridor of that lane that he's going to be running in, he says, I've got 10 seconds to justify my entire existence. 10 seconds. What he's saying is I've got 10 seconds to prove I'm a person of worth and value. And the only way I can do it is by winning that race. And the implication is if he doesn't win, He's not a person of value. He's worthless. And uh, the gospel has something to say about that. But that is the philosophy of the world. That, that's how we, are, how, how we derive our identities. A lot of people are chasing that today. 
uh, chasing identity through fulfilling your role or through success. And, and then lastly, Robert Bella says, and this is the one that's gaining ground today, that our identity is really determined through authenticity. Through discovering the feelings inside of me, connecting with those feelings, and then living those feelings out. And then demanding that the world accept me based on those feelings. And uh, so this is, this is identity through authenticity. So it's not really about what you can accomplish. It's about what you feel and, and you being true to who you are in expressing yourself. Now, I've shared this with you before, but certainly you find this theme really popping in the Disney movies, uh, the movie Frozen, um, where Elsa, you know, she sings this song and she's singing about how the world pressures us to conform into its image. And, and so she, she sings about that in the, kind of one of, her, one of the early verses. She says, don't let them in. Don't let them see. You must be the good girl you were meant to be. Conceal, don't feel, don't let them know, uh, but, but let it go. So she's just talking about how the culture calls us to not be true to ourselves, not to be true to our feelings. But then she comes behind that and she says this, it's time to see what I can do test the limits and break through, no right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. I'm gonna do what I wanna do. I'm gonna live my true self, my feelings. Um, my feelings are really my highest value. So that, that's really the conversation that is, that is uh, being put forth to define our identity. And uh, I, I just love Brian Rosner's definition um, because it's completely counter to that. We are image bearers of God, known and loved by God. It has nothing to do with our performance and uh, it doesn't have anything to do with our feelings. It's just the truth of who we are. So, so that's how the world knows us through those kind of competing identities. But here's the second thing that I see from, from this passage. And this is where I want us to kind of walk through this passage, but that I can know Jesus. I can know him. And the way that we know each other, the way that I know myself, the way that I know the world is through stories, but the, also the way that I know Jesus is through his story, through the gospel story. And what he does is he unpacks this a little bit at a time, but especially in chapter eight, this is the hinge chapter. So up to this point, Jesus has been trying to reveal himself to the disciples. He's, he's showing them who he is and what he came to do. And it's slow for them. I mean, they, they, they're slow in getting this, kind of like us, slow in trying to understand who Jesus is. And so Peter finally says, you're the Messiah. You're the king. You're the king who's going to make everything right. And Jesus says to him, you're right when, I, when you say that I'm the king, but I'm not the king that you expect. I'm a different kind of king. And I mean, he throws them a curveball that had to leave them absolutely stunned. Look at what he says in verse 31. He's, it says this, he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. They had to absolutely be stunned by this. Because you have to understand what, what he's saying is this, I'm the king that you say that I am but I'm the king that comes to suffer and to be rejected and to die. And they had to be like, what in the world are you talking about? 
that doesn't even make sense. The reason why that doesn't make sense to them because that's not the story that they were told. That's not how they understood Jesus. Let, let me show you what I mean. Do you notice in verse 31 that Jesus uses this phrase, son of man? Do you see that there? That is Jesus' favorite description of himself. And it really comes from Daniel chapter 7. And what it communicates in Daniel chapter 7, which you know, they, they, would have been, they would have been well aware of Daniel chapter 7 and, and the son of man. And, and so what it conveys in this you know, in Daniel 7, is that the Son of Man is a divine Messiah figure who's come to make everything right, who's come to set everything straight. And so Jesus uses himself and, and describes himself this way and doubles down on it because you see him using it again in verse 38 when he says he's going to return to the earth with the glory of the Father, with the holy angels. The Son of Man will return. So he's doubling down on it. But this is what he's saying, church. The Son of Man is going to suffer and die. The, so, the Son of Man is going to be rejected. And these are just two ideas that they had never heard before. They're like, what do you mean the Son of Man is going to suffer and die? How in the world can you defeat the Romans? How can you make everything right and you're going to die? That doesn't even make sense. The, the Messiah has to come in power. He has to rule. He has to set up the kingdom. And this is, why, this is why Peter, in verse 32, responds the way that he does to Jesus when he says, you know, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. You see that? Now that word rebuke, that's the same word that Mark uses to describe what Jesus does to demons. It's the strongest possible term. And so Peter's rebuking Jesus. He's correcting Jesus here. And, uh, and, and so... You have to ask, well, why is Peter so freaked out? Well, the answer to that is because ever since Peter was a kid, he understood the Messiah to be a military political conqueror. That was the identity that he had, that he understood. And, uh, and what Jesus is saying is this, I am the king, I am the Messiah, but I'm not going to Jerusalem to the throne. I'm going to the cross. That's what I'm gonna do. Now, what would it mean for him to go to the cross. When you think about the cross, you think about the cross is, is really the, the epitome of helplessness, weakness, suffering, and shame. I mean, there was no earth, better earthly expression of that than the cross. You know, other forms of the death penalty throughout human history, they, they left some integrity and dignity for you when you when they put you to death, not the cross. I mean, they stripped you naked, they hung you in public, they beat you, they, they whipped you, they spit on you, they made fun of you. There was no dignity left. And what Jesus is saying here is this, I'm not, I'm not going to Jerusalem to rule, I'm going to Jerusalem to serve. I'm not going to Jerusalem to gain power, I'm going to Jerusalem to give up power. I'm going not to live, but I'm going to die. And those guys had to be, what are you even saying? This does not even make sense. And so Peter's rebuking Jesus. So you see how Jesus turns and responds to Peter in verse 33. And notice how Mark describes this. Uh, by turning and seeing his disciples, 
he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So Jesus is rebuking Peter at this point because Peter was standing in opposition to God's plan. Peter's not surrendering to Jesus' story. What Peter's doing here is he's using Jesus to gain his own story. I mean, think about what he wants from Jesus. He wants Jesus to be a a military and political conqueror. Why? So that he can gain a respectable identity in the eyes of the world. So that he can have power and position and be respected in the eyes of the world. I want to sit on your right. I want to rule with you in your cabinet. And in essence, what Peter is doing is using Jesus. And he's becoming an obstacle to the plan of God. And Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. You don't value what God values. You value what man values. That's what he's saying. Now, church, we, we do this. We've done this uh, ourselves. I, I think there's some people in the church that, you know, they come to church and they want to use Jesus to kind of gain an identity through success. You know, they want to be a good person. They want to, you know, come to church and, you know, do good things because they, they're, really, they're really using God They're trying to posture themselves in such a way, well, I'm a good person. God has to bless me. He owes me. Look at all the good that I do for him. He's got to bless my business. He's got to bless my efforts. He's got to bless me with a scholarship. And and part of what what we're motivated by is kind of using God so that we can gain success and status and significance in the eyes of the world. And Jesus said, you know, I I didn't really come for your comfort. I, I didn't really come for your status. I came to reveal my love to the world. And what Jesus is saying is I really want you to join me in that. So some people try to use Jesus even today to, you know, hopefully he'll bless their business, bless their life, bless their whatever. And uh, we do this all the time. I, I think other people believe that Jesus would affirm their every desire, every desire of their heart, you know, And how does the storyline go? Well, God wants me to be happy, right? You guys have heard that? I'm I'm just being true to myself. God wants me to be happy. I have this desire. I gotta I gotta live it out. And so the 45 year old man who is, you know, right in the middle of a midlife crisis, divorces his wife, leaves his kids, and goes and marries someone else, you know, who's half his age. What's the storyline of that? Well, God wants me to be happy, right? It's about my story. It's about my happiness. My happiness is first. It's not about Jesus' story. I'm the central character in my story and what Jesus says, and he says this so clearly in verse 34, if anyone would come after me, church, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That the pathway, what Jesus is saying, the pathway that I'm on, suffering in the cross, is the pathway I invite you to join me and take the pathway with me. See, really what Jesus is doing in verse 34 is he's calling us into his story. He's calling us to lay down, you know, our, our dreams and pick up his story. Now, why would, why would he do that? I, I, uh, 
we'll kind of talk about that in a minute. But I, you know, I want you to kind of think about what, what, what Jesus is really saying here. What he's saying is this, that I'm going to lay down my status for you. I'm going to lay down my feelings for you. Because that's exactly what Jesus did. He emptied himself in coming to the earth. He, he laid down his d- divine prerogatives, right? He laid down his status. He was born in a cattle trough. He grew up in poverty. He, he, he didn't command the armies. He, he didn't lead the nations. He didn't build an empire. He, he wasn't a great philosopher like, you know, in the eyes of people like Socrates and, and Plato. He, he, he laid all of that down. Why? To go to the cross for you and for me. He, uh, he laid down every desire that he had to live. He laid it down. Why? To go to the cross. Because he loved you and me. See, church, here's what defines our identity. Is the love of God. That's what defines us as human beings. Not what we do. Not what we feel. But that we are image bearers of God. We are God's creation. Known and loved by God. How do I know? He went to the cross. And that's what he's saying here. He gave up status. He gave up his feelings. He gave up his desires for for you and for me so that we could have life. And then that brings us to the third truth that I can know my true self only through knowing Jesus. I I can know my true self only through knowing Jesus. And Jesus says this. Look at verse 35. I want to I show, show you this. Uh, he's, Jesus comes and says this. It, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and then the gospel's sake will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? He's talking about a paradox here. He's talking about the fact that if you, that, that if you, you want to save your life, he's saying you're going to lose it. If, if, you, if you try to hang on to your story and you try to make yourself the central character in your story, where life's all about you, what Jesus is saying is you're going to lose it. But then he says, whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will actually save it. Now, when you think about that word life in Greek, when he says, you know, whoever would save his life, uh, that word life in Greek is the word psyche. We get the word psychology from that word. What psyche means in Greek is my sense of self, my identity, my uh, my, my personality, my, my selfhood. That's what he's talking about. So, so what, he's, what he's saying is don't, don't follow the world by trying to gain an identity that the world says you have. Because what does it profit a man if you gain that and yet you lose your soul, you lose your, your, your identity, you really lose your true self. Because I think for... For what the world tells us is, oh, I can be somebody important if I can gain successful and compliant children. Or if I can gain a six-figure career. Or if I can gain a nice house. Or if I can gain my parents' approval or somebody else's approval. And what Jesus is saying is, no, that's not how you actually lose your identity in that. The way to an identity is by laying down your story 
and taking in the gospel story. You actually find yourself because yourself was created by him to know him. Now, I'll close with this. You know, when you think about your identity and, you know, the stuff that we, we've all chased after and pursued to, to kind of find our life, our identity, why is that the wrong search? I would just say because it just doesn't last. Everything that the world tells us that we need to chase, it doesn't last. And what Jesus is advocating here is chase something that does last. Your relationship with me. His love for you. That's the only thing that lasts. In two weeks, you know, they're going to play the Super Bowl. I don't know who's going to be in it. Probably Alabama. But, uh, <laughs> but I'll say this. Whoever gets there in two weeks, do you think it's even going to matter a year from now? Will it even matter two years from now? Think about that. If you live for success, does that last forever? Or do you just have to keep going, keep going, and keep going? See, it doesn't last. Our feelings don't even last. They're just up and down. Don't let your feelings dictate your life. Let the love of God lead your life. That's the only thing worth living for. You know why? It's the only thing that lasts forever. And you can, you can chase the rat race. You can, you can chase everything the world tells you you need to chase. You'll never find it. It just slips through your fingers. We were made to know God, to walk with him. And so since the beginning of time, God's been building a family. And it's a family characterized by love and relationships. And the issue is not going to be what I was able to accomplish or what you were able to accomplish. The issue is what he accomplished for us. His love for us. That's what defines us. That's what marks us as human beings. So let me ask you, what are you living for? What are you basing your identity on? What are you chasing? Jesus says, what good is it if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you praise. We, we give you thanks for who you are and for what you've done. God, I thank you that you created us to achieve things. You created us to accomplish things. But ultimately, those things do not define us. You created us with feelings and hopes and dreams. But ultimately, those things don't even define us. What defines us is something that never changes something that's lasting, something that's real, something that brings you glory, and that is your love for us. And so God, I ask that you would open our eyes to what really matters in life, our relationship with you, our relationship with one another. So God, I ask that you would help us to see who we are 
that you would set us free to be the men and women of God, the students that you want us to be for your glory, for your love. We confess it's, it's a paradox that we, in laying down our life, we actually find it. We would have never thought that, just like the disciples would have never thought. But God, I thank you that you came, you sent your son to show us the way, to show us the paradoxes lived out. That if we would humble ourselves, you would lift us up. So God, would you do that today? Would you do it for your glory today? We pray all of this in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen and amen.